Would you turn with me in God's Word to Ezra chapters 9 and 10. Ezra 9. Looking at Lord's Day 33 this evening about conversion, turning from sin to the Lord, and we have this historic event and illustration of that in Ezra 9 and 10. A longer scripture reading tonight, but I think it reads quickly and better than trying to summarize it for you here. So Ezra 9 at verse 1. Actually, I could point out that there's a break in the book of Ezra between chapter 6 and chapter 7. In fact, that would be where you would insert the book of Esther. So there is an earlier period where the people have returned, and then at chapter 7, or I guess rather, um, yes, chapter 7, that Ezra is coming now. Um, Ezra 7, Ezra comes to Jerusalem from Babylon. And we read uh, in Ezra 7, verse 6, that this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So Ezra now comes to Jerusalem to revive God's people, to reinstate the law, to preach to them God's will. And something happens when he does that. Ezra 9, verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, 
Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have transgressed, we have trespassed against our God, and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoahan, the son of Eliashib, And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity." So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. 
Then all the assembly answered and said, With a loud voice, yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of their cities, until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Azahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shebathai, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain heads of the father's households were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. But the first day, by the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach and his brothers, Messiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Also of the sons of Emer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Haram, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Isaiah of the sons of Pashur, Elioni, Messiah, Ishmael, Nathanael, Jazabad, and Elisah. Also of the Levites, Jazabad, Shimei, Keliah, the same as Kalida, Pethathiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Also of the singers, Eliashib, and of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri, and others of Israel. A list of names that goes all the way down through verse 43. And then at verse 44 we read, All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And so ends the book. If you turn from God's Word to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33, Remembering last time we began the third section of the catechism about how to live a grateful life. Why should we do good works if they don't earn our salvation? Well, because we're new creatures in Christ. And we want to bring God pleasure. We want to praise him. We want to be assured of our faith by its fruits and win our neighbors for Christ. And then on page 238, page 238, it was asked, Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? And it said, by no means. So we have to turn to God. And now Lord's Day 33 on page 238, it asks about this turning to God. Question 88 says, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. Well, what is the dying away of the old self? It's to be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. What is the rising to life of the new self? It's wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. And finally, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory. 
and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. Shall we come before God asking for his blessing tonight? Our Father in heaven, as we anticipate the Lord's Supper next week, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts, that you would give to us the faith and the repentance and the trust in Christ necessary to come before you sincerely and in truth. And we thank you, Lord, for your teaching about what conversion and repentance is. We pray that your word tonight would bless us in that, that you and more and more would grant us hearts that are pleased to fleece and and hate it, to cling unto our Lord Jesus and walk in his ways. Write your truth upon us this evening, we pray. Search out, O Lord, for those hidden sins and expose them. And bring us more and more, we pray, into compliance with your holy will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congregation of Christ, we are naturally dead in our sin. But when the Holy Spirit takes hold of us, he, he gives a new heart. We call that regeneration, the giving of life to the dead heart, the being born again. And when that happens, when that internal miracle takes place by the sovereign work of the Spirit, then it expresses itself in a life of conversion. Conversion is not just a one-time event. There is an initial conversion, the first time we turn to the Lord, But conversion is also a daily activity of the Christian life. Conversion is to characterize our whole existence, that we are constantly putting sin to death, putting off sin, and putting on Christ. We are constantly turning from sin, seeking to hate sin and flee sin, and to come closer to our God to walk in his commandments. There is this ongoing daily conversion. Well, in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, we have a moment of profound significance in the history of the church, and it illuminates to us the meaning and significance of conversion. And here the Lord leads his people to sorrow over their sin in a profound way and to turn back to God. And tonight, in these chapters in connection with Lord's Day 33, we want to see, first of all, the great need for conversion, and then to consider the Lord of conversion— And then to think about the genuineness of conversion. Those three points tonight, the need for conversion, the Lord of conversion, and the genuineness of conversion. Ezra hasn't been back in Jerusalem for more than five months before they come and tell Ezra there is a desperate need of conversion. He's told... That the people of Israel, including their leaders and the priests, have taken the wives from among the pagan peoples that surround them. Now you picture the scene here. God's people, more than a hundred years earlier, had come under the judgment of God, carried away as captives to Babylon. They had been unfaithful, they had been idolaters, they had mixed with the world, they had failed to worship God alone and worship the gods of their neighbors. And God, after calling to repentance repeatedly, finally brings this ultimate discipline. He kicks them out of the land, and they're carried off as captives to Babylon. But then after the years of captivity, Cyrus the Persian comes to power, 
And by God's sovereign will, Cyrus releases them, and some of them go home, and they rebuild the temple. And now it's been about 80 years since they returned home. And God sends now Ezra, the skilled scribe and student of the law of God, God sends Ezra now, 80 years later from Babylon, to Jerusalem to reinstate his law. Ezra comes back and he receives a horrible and shocking surprise. The old problem of intermarriage with pagans has again invaded the church. God had expressly commanded his people not to mix with the world, not to marry the unbelievers. And he warned if they did that, they they would face God's wrath. They would be tempted to worship false gods. They would come under the discipline of the Lord. But the temptation was apparently strong as they came back and lived in the land. Maybe they just liked the beautiful women of the world, or or maybe they thought there would be stronger alliances with the peoples around them. If they married, wouldn't it just be easier if we all got along and, and loved each other and mixed with the world? But it's a terrible tragedy. They have defamed the holy name of their God. They have compromised the church, and they actually are threatening the very existence of God's people because if the church loses her separateness, her identity as the holy people of God, then what's left of the church and what's left for the future of the church and for God's plan here? And so there's a desperate need for conversion. There has been, of course, this need since our fall into sin back in the garden. We had been made with hearts that seek God. We had turned to Satan. Our hearts had turned away from God. And now there's this need to turn back to God, to be turned to the Lord. In every believing life, there's an initial conversion, right? Sometimes it's quite dramatic. You think of Saul, the persecutor on the road to Damascus. Or you think of in church history, Augustine, who in the garden hears those children saying, take up and read, and he opens the book to Romans, and here's the call to leave sexual immorality behind, and he's awakened, he's changed. But there's also lots of conversions that are more gradual, those born into covenant homes who learn from their earliest days to trust the Lord and to taught by their parents from their earliest memories to, to confess sin before God turn from it. But whether or not our initial conversion was dramatic or gradual, if our conversion was real, then what follows is a life of conversion, a life of living for the Lord, a life of turning away from sin to God. And that life includes lots of usual daily conversion, but it may also include moments of dramatic conversion again. Think of King David, who takes another man's wife. It's not till, till Nathan the prophet comes and presses him that, that David is broken. Or think here of, of what happens in this book of Ezra. That God's people at last realize we have, have deeply compromised. We have strayed from the Lord. But the reality is that we, we never see this need of conversion until God's law is applied with its straight edge to our lives. And that's what seems to happen here in the book of Ezra. This, this preacher of the law shows up. and Maybe he's been preaching away the law. Maybe that's what led them to come and bring to Ezra this great problem. Ezra 
has come to declare the claims of the holy God upon his holy people. You must be separate from the world. You must be holy as I am holy, God says. And suddenly they are deeply aware of the perversions that they, as the community of the church, have accepted. For who knows how long they've been putting up with this. They've been, they've been enduring this. They've been embracing this mixing. But when the law comes, they're made aware. We have sinned against the Lord, they say. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, when we're awakened to a need for conversion. When by the law of God we see my life is, is not, my life has strayed from, from that straight way. I in this area or in that area, I have veered from course. I need to be turned back to the Lord God. We too know worldliness. Remember what John said in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Worldliness isn't a matter of living in the world, that we live in a neighborhood where unbelievers live and we should try to get a Christian ghetto. That, that would save us from worldliness. No, that's not where God draws the line. Paul says, I'm not calling you to leave the world and quit working next door or with unbelievers. But worldliness is when our hearts love sin. When we've given up holiness and following our Lord. Worldliness can be found when young people date unbelievers, those who are connected to the world but not to the church. Worldliness can be found when a, a, in a Christian marriage a husband deals with his wife harshly or is irresponsible towards her. Or he puts his own ambitions ahead of her needs. Or when a Christian wife towards a Christian husband refuses to submit to him, but she belittles him and she scorns him. Worldliness is found when children disobey their parents, when they will not submit to their discipline. Worldliness is found when we treat money the same way the world treats money. Worldliness is found when we feed on the kind of ideas that the world loves to sing about, as if those were the things that please God. Worldliness is found when we think that life is about our own pleasure, about our own creature comforts, and not, first of all, about the coming of Christ's kingdom. And worldliness for the believer is to be a great grief because we've seen the mercies of God. And Ezra's prayer here in chapter 9, verse 9, is, is quite... Astounding, isn't it? He says, we were slaves, but you didn't forsake us. You gave us mercy in the sight of the kings of Persia. We got to go back and rebuild the, the temple. You gave us another chance, another opportunity. And then Ezra 9, verse 10, And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we've forsaken your commandments. How can we do this again? How can it be after this tremendous discipline that you kicked your people out of the promised land and you broke us and now in mercy you've brought us home that we would do the same thing to you again? We need to be converted. 
Catechism speaks about good works. Good works are those that proceed from the heart of faith, trusting the Lord, but then they conform to God's law, not our own ideas, and then they're done for God's glory and not for our own comforts, our own praise. But Israel has not been busy in good works. Her behavior has not arisen from faith. It has not conformed to God's law, and it has not been done for God's glory. We need to be converted. But then secondly tonight, as we wonder, can, can there be conversion for people who have done these kinds of things to God? We'll look secondly tonight at the Lord of conversion. The Lord of conversion. Had God left us alone, what would become of us? But God didn't leave us alone. He sends to his people Ezra. Now think about this. They've been back in Jerusalem for decades And now they've wandered far from the Lord in this intermarriage. And what does God do? Does he throw up his arms and say, oh, forget you all. Oh, he sends them a scribe. A scribe who's particularly skilled in God's law. A scribe who has set his heart to teach the truth to God's people. He sends them Ezra for reformation. And we read about how the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra, because as Ezra asked the king permission to go and to bring more people back to Jerusalem, the king said yes, and the king says, here, I give you money, and here, buy sacrifices when you get there, and here, do you want an escort for the way home to keep you safe? And the Lord was with Ezra. And we read that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. When Ezra heard that the people of God had intermarried, he was appalled. Ezra gets the news and he he shreds his clothes, plucks out his hair. He is just devastated, astonished, appalled. But what's even more amazing is that when Ezra goes to make confession of sin, did you notice how he speaks? Ezra does not distance himself from the people and say, Oh, Lord, you know I love you, but these people. No, but he says, as he falls on his knees and spreads out his hands, he says in verse 6, Oh, my God, I'm too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Ezra identifies with the people of God in their sin and in their guilt. Ezra says in verse 15b, Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Ezra is a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior who identifies with us, God's sinful people, and is willing to take our sin upon himself. Just as Jesus, remember, would fall in the Garden of Gethsemane, appalled and devastated and overwhelmed as he considered our sin and the wrath of God against it, as he felt the increasing strength of hell falling upon him, that darkness. So Ezra here, in his appalled condition, foreshadows the dread of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ezra was not ashamed to call them brethren. Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. He comes to take our place and to bear our guilt. 
And this is good news, brothers and sisters, because you see, what happens is the law of God comes into our lives and we see what we've done. And we, we say, as Ezra said, how could it be that I would have done this again? And we think to ourselves, if I were God, I'd say, forget him. And we wonder, is there any way back? Is there any point in turning back? Then we remember our Lord Jesus Christ who has paid it all, who has taken our guilt upon his back, and who has opened a way. And even when we aren't as sorry as we should be for our sin, and we find that our conversion is weak, we're not turning from sin as we ought to the Lord, we may ask God to give us what Christ has purchased for us, the convicting spirit, the broken heart. God, help us to be sorry for our sins. It's an amazing thing that the Lord works here in this story of Ezra, that the people begin to gather to Ezra, their law preacher and their intercessor. And God gives to them broken hearts. Well, let's look at that. Then finally, the genuineness of conversion. The genuineness of conversion. As we see these people coming back to confess their sin. Lord's Day 33 reminds us that there is true conversion. And true conversion consists of two things. The dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. It's to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it, to run away from it. It's to find joy in God through Christ and to delight to do God's will. Now, these two things go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, well, you know, I'm really good at being sorry, but I have no joy or delight to follow God's will. You can't say, well, I'm going to follow God's will, but I'm not so sorry about sin. These are two sides of a single coin, aren't they? They always go together. They're always found in the same people at the same time. But when the Catechism says what's involved in genuine repentance or conversion, it's reminding us that there's such a thing as false conversions. False conversions have often been witnessed in our country as the fruit of the kind of revivals and crusades that invite people to do something. Walk down an aisle, raise a hand. Make your decision. I'm not saying all the fruit is false. Some of it, of course, is wonderfully true. But there's a multitude of people who've made the decision and left the stadium and gone on to live in their sin. And that's not true conversion. Jesus told us in the parable of the sower that seed is scattered broadly, but some falls in the kinds of places that like shallow soil, it springs up, these seeds do, looking like vibrant, excited plants, but then they wither away. That's not true conversion. There's a sham conversion. Sometimes it's found in those who've, who've kicked a habit. They've amended their life. They've changed a behavior, and they think that's their conversion. But it's just a behavioral change. True conversion is a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's to be genuine, sor- genuinely sorry for sin. Heartfelt sorrow. It goes deeper than externals. 
In Joel chapter 2, the Lord said, Return to me with all your heart, rend your heart and not your garments. If all you do is tear your clothes, signs of repentance, but have no heart repentance, it's not very good. Now, if you have both, as Ezra did, that you're tearing your clothes as a sign that your heart is broken, you're humbled before God, that's something different. But God said to his people, don't give me your torn clothes when your hearts are hard as stone. Jeremiah 3 says, you look like a harlot. You refuse to blush. You won't be ashamed. And then there's false sorrow, of course. When we grieve over the consequences of sin, the embarrassment of sin, the cost of sin, but we don't grieve that we've offended God, that we've betrayed our Lord. We don't say, as Ezra said, Lord, how could I do this to you after all you've done for me? And that's a worldly sorrow that brings death, 2 Corinthians 7 tells us. True sorrow is found among God's people in Ezra 9 and 10. The ones who tremble at God's word, who are cut to the heart. And they begin to assemble and to weep bitterly with Ezra. How can we have done this to our God? It's not just to be genuinely sorry, but also then to give up the sin. To turn from it, to put it away, to cast it aside. In the midst of all the weeping, one man, Shechaniah, says, There's hope. Let's make a covenant with God to put away all these wives and the children born to them. Now, that's perhaps the most perplexing part of this whole passage, isn't it? How is it that they put away all these women and the, their children, the children born to them, their children? Well, it seems to be a unique moment in the history of God's people where the future of the church is at stake. If God's people are blended with the world, the church is done for, the church is gone. And what we have here is, if somebody says, well, does it apply today? Well, the answer is yes and no. In principle, it applies, but in its particulars, it doesn't apply. In principle, yes, put off worldliness, turn away from sin. But in particulars... 1 Corinthians 7 says, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, don't divorce them. The unbelieving husband or wife is consecrated by the believing one. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul is speaking there of a situation, presumably, where the gospels come to Corinth, and there were two unbelievers, and one now believed on Christ, the other one doesn't, and they wonder, should I leave my unbelieving spouse? And Paul says, no, if they're willing to live with you, stay married. But the principle here still applies, doesn't it? To put away the worldly heart, to sorrow over sin, but also the coming to life of the new, wholehearted joy in God through Christ, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God. Isn't that wonderful? The gospel's good news. At the same time, we're sorrowing over our sin and grieving. We are to be rejoicing in Christ our Savior. It's not you have to pass through this long desert of sorrow, and finally down there you might be able to rejoice. But no, it's, it's the moment you turn and say, Lord, I'm sorry I've sinned. You are also finding joy in God through Christ, saying, what a Savior. That there's a way back. There's a Lord who has covered my sin. Peter could write to 
Christians saying that you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because you're receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. David could say after his confession of adultery and murder, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's a joy to know our sins are forgiven. It's a joy to know God through the mediator, Jesus Christ. It's a joy knowing that Christ's blood covers all our sin. Sorrow comes from knowing we've failed God, we've broken his law. Joy comes from knowing that God has repaired the breach. And this is a joy that transcends earthly happiness. It's not a worldly happiness. It's a joy in God that now we want to walk in his law and his commandments. We no longer do we find the law of God to be a burden and repulsive. 1 John 5 says, This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the, the new life now that we find in us, brothers and sisters. The Spirit gives us a new heart, and that, that new heart shows itself in a life of conversion. I, I no longer have the same appetites I did. I'm sorry for my sin. I hate my sin. Oh, I find it enticing, but I'm, I'm finding in my inner man I hate that old way. I don't want to displease God. And in my inner man, I delight in God's law. I want to walk in close fellowship with him. I want to keep his word. And I'm crying out to God day by day, turn my heart from sin and to you, O Lord. Let my pleasure be found not in the old way, but in the new And that's what God works in us by Christ Jesus. What a story Ezra 9 and 10 is. People carried all the way to captivity, chastised under decades of imprisonment in Babylon, given a new chance to go home and start again, and falling back into sin. And yet God comes again. With Ezra, with the preaching of the law, with Ezra, the preaching of the gospel, and with the foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who still hasn't given up on us, but tonight says, turn from your sin. Sorrow over it. Recognize your worldliness. Grieve it. And find your joy in the Lord, knowing that in Christ is forgiveness, in Christ is the new heart, in Christ is the grace to walk with your covenant Lord. And as we think of the Lord's Supper next Sunday, this is what God wants. He wants to feed his converted and converting people. Those who are committed to a life of conversion, come, he says, eat, drink, and live. Come be strengthened. Come have the assurance that I take you again. I forgive all your sins, and I will strengthen you for the good fight. Amen. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the great things you are doing. We praise you for what you've done for your church throughout the ages. And we acknowledge, O Lord, tonight that the world is too much with us. The lust of our eyes, the pride of our lives. O God, we need to be converted. Grant us the grace to hate sin and to love your righteousness. Give us your law to expose our sin. Give us your gospel to see the open arms of our Heavenly Father. And where, O Lord, we're struggling to be converted, to turn, grant us that glorious power of your Spirit who brings the dead to life and sets captives free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.